I really hope we got that on, on recording. <laughs> What's up? This is this is Steinfeld Talks again. Um, I'm super excited for this one. Uh, I've been wanting to get this man on since I can't, had the idea to come up with a podcast. It's one of the first first human beings I've, I asked. Ladies and gentlemen, the immortal, the mighty Matthew Monroe. Thank you, thank you. Please, going with on, your applause. Uh, uh, Bruce, I know you're listening. How you doing? I hope Florida's uh, full of sunshine. And uh, you gotta watch those Facebook posts. You're liking a lot of radical stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was uh, I was talking to my dad yesterday. He's um, so he's he's pretty um, suspicious of the uh, of the protesters and of the Democratic mm. Party in general. And well, no, uh, that's he, what it seems like. He he told me, and he prefaces this with he thinks Trump is an idiot that he is leaning towards voting for Trump over Biden because oh, oh, Bruce. he is Bruce, no. convinced that uh, Biden will be a puppet for the radical left. Oh, so, wow. Um, if, I, if only I had the same amount of confidence. Really, I'd be a much happier person if I believed that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, first things first, happy 9-11, Steinfeld. Yeah, happy 9-11. Happy 9-11. Uh, happy birthday to, you know, uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. Happy birthday to ICE. Well, they, they weren't born on 9-11, but the, the evil seed was definitely uh, conceived on 9-11. Yep. When, uh, first, Dick Cheney went to the middle of Iraq, and he laid this ostrich-sized egg out of his urethra that was just black. <laughs> and the Donald um, Rumsfeld came on, he jizzed this just black liquid onto it and that eventually grew into the Patriot Act. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been listening to that uh, podcast you recommended blowback. Mm. Uh, what do you think? Listen, listen to an episode today on nine 11. Nice. Really of course. So solid podcast. I mean, what, what the fuck were we doing? I know. And they got H John Benjamin as Saddam Hussein. Yeah. <laughs> what could you ask? That, that was awesome. Um, all right, should we? Uh, I, I think you you might have already taken a hit. I'll take my first hit. Now. Oh no, not yet. This will be my first hit of the day. I'd like to give a big big shout out to uh, Mr. Uh, Wolf De Cloutage, my personal dealer. <laughs> a beautiful man, uh, a handsome man, a kind man. Got me some of this. I believe it's called Wet Dream from uh, the New Jersey <laughs> dispensary system. Very Thank nice. I <laughs> think I believe I am smoking Gorilla Glue. Right? Oh, nice. Good stuff. Nice to I stick. I can't recall. It's it's pretty sticky. It's nice. I got it in uh, in Lansing, Michigan. I've been pretty much I've been doing it every day for the past like since I got this thing. It's already almost gone. But like after three months, almost four months of not doing any THC at all, like it still gets me. Like mm -hmm. that first hit, it takes a while to come back. But all right, you ready? Here's to the troops. Cheers. <laughs> Wherever they are. Both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, why don't we uh, talk about that a little bit? So you've been a, an avid consumer of marijuana for uh, for many years now. Yeah, going on almost, I'd say I think 2012 is when I really hit my stride because that was the first real. That like you were there the first time we actually got high yeah. in your backyard, big bowl that, of Doritos. You know that, the whole. Do that that summer was the best summer of my life. God, that was a great summer. Yeah. Um, and then you took you took a pretty uh, pretty long hiatus. Yeah, this summer. Not um 
not necessarily by choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, believe, believe you me, Stifle, I have my ways. I can summon it from the asphalt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can call it in my pocket. <laughs> there was definitely okay. some choice in the matter, but it was, I was definitely helped by circumstance. Mm -hmm. Why don't you uh, talk a little bit about what it was like um, being sober from marijuana for uh, for so long <laughs> after it being such, so indulging in it? Well, the broad statement would be that being sober from marijuana feels a lot like being drunk on alcohol because I was drinking a lot of alcohol. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which certainly helps. But uh, honestly, but the first thing I noticed as soon as I started doing it again was just the, the sheer bare knuckles fight that goes on between a man and his own brain when he's trying to go to sleep. I forgot how easy it used to be to just take a bill woof of something uh, off a dab pen or a hit out of a pipe and then just sack. Oh, like it's bad for you. You don't get as much REM sleep or deep sleep as you're supposed to, but oh, it's so good. Yeah. You, you just, you just lay down. I, yeah. Uh, I actually, I, tend to like not be able to sleep when I get really high. I don't know, there's like a sweet spot, like if I'm a yeah, little bit high and like really mellow, I just like melt into the bed. But yeah, if I'm too high, if I too much, going. I feel like I'm wasting it. And then I gotta go listen to a podcast or a bunch of music for a bunch yeah. of time. So the, uh, so the reason that you weren't um, indulging is because you were living at your girlfriend's place and mm -hmm. uh, are, are they uh, anti-marijuana? Uh, honestly, I don't think they're, they're, they're just people over the age of 50. Okay. <laughs> they're, uh, both accountants, they're nicest people in the world, <laughs> you know, but uh, they're, they're all big uh, drinkers except for her dad, like they have a fully stocked bar at their lake, okay. they drink there all the time, so that was pretty normal. I know uh, uh, maybe one of her uh, sister's boyfriends used to do it, mm -hmm. and uh, but like, uh, it really reaches a sort of hit point where at a certain point, the amount of risk you'd be like bringing on to yourself and the embarrassment you would bring your girlfriend if her parents caught you <laughs> doing drugs in their lake house. Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain median there where at a certain point, yeah, maybe taking a three, four month break really is the easiest. I, I, at first, I did not think it would be that long. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the schedules changed and we eventually had her sister's wedding at the end of the summer with a very, you know, small crowd. You know, everybody got tested for COVID before showing up. But originally, I believe the plan was that they were just going to postpone their wedding. And then me and Jenna were just going to hang out at the lake house for a couple months while we looked for an apartment. But uh, Where was the lake house? Uh, it's in Sussex County. It's up in, you know, uh, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's where I went to summer camp. Oh, no, it's gorgeous. Beautiful area. A lot of Confederate flags, a lot of Trump really? flags. Really? <laughs> gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Especially right now. Boy, you, you wouldn't even believe. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of um, a lot of Trump flags when I was in Michigan. And mm -hmm. actually, this... I was going to bring this up anyway, because we we're talking about being at our girlfriend's parents' lake houses. When I was in Michigan with Alex this summer, at her, we were spent some time at her uh, parents' lake house up in Marquette, right on um, the, sh the southern shore of Lake Superior, which is beautiful. I really, the whole time was like, can I just get away from these people for like 10 minutes and go to a freaking dispensary? <laughs> like, like after, like, I don't, how, how long were you there for? Like, uh, we were up there for like four days. Then we went back down to Traverse city in mainland Michigan mm -hmm. where they only sell CBD. And then we spent okay. a night at her brother's in Lansing where we managed to find like one dispensary that was not medical. Wow. So, all right. So that's a, that's a decent amount of time. Uh, let me just say after two months, 
you maybe start to get used to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you like, you wrench these moments free for yourself. Like for my for my birthday originally, I was gonna because you know, you me, Steinfeld. I'm a huge history buff. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of for my birthday, July seventh, I was gonna go to uh, Gettysburg uh, Park in Pennsylvania, oh. just check out. Like, oh, I, mean, I love that. Uh, that's, Ken Burns cool. Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to like just you know make a day out of it just by myself, you know, out in the open, socially mm-hmm. distanced, and just like hike around, go see a uh, little round top, go see uh, Pickett's Charge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the blood bucket uh, hay bale, you know, all <laughs> spots that uh, were major, like because it's really baffling to think about that, you know, a uh, two hour drive away, you know, roughly like a hundred and God, what was it? I, I don't know the numbers off the top it was of my almost head. 150 years ago. I think. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to. Okay, yeah. Because, like, these are mostly, you got to remember, most of these people were like 16, 18 years old. Yeah. They're conscripted into the federal army to fight rebels. The Confederates are honestly even worse off because they were conscripted for a Confederate army that mm-hmm. barely didn't have a government. Yep. And, uh, like, 40,000 people died in that battle. Like, I, I don't know the number. Um, it's nuts. Like it, it was at well, the time the largest battle yeah. in the Western Hemisphere in history. Wow. But uh, yeah, I was gonna do that for my birthday. You know, <laughs> day. and then the day before, a bunch of fucking uh, like proud boy protesters with guns and American flag, uh, you know, bandanas, started harassing a black man, a black preacher who went to Gettysburg. Uh, and that was the day before, and I was like, "Come on, Pennsylvania, couldn't you keep it chill for a day?" Wow. Yeah, that, so, but the, it, instead I went fishing by myself. Nice. And even that, that was like a couple hours. Like I didn't even stay that long because I think I had to shit. So I went back. <laughs> and then it's still in July, so I wasn't too keen on using any public bathrooms. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, you always have to consider that when you're going out for for a while. Like, where mm-hmm. is the nearest bathroom? I gotta. That's why I hate the, my least favorite thing ever is being rushed. Even if I'm rushing myself, I would rather wake up an hour before I have to, to go to work and just sit on the toilet for a solid half hour, 45 minutes, just drinking black coffee, just inhaling uh, a sailor's amount of nicotine, just to, just to shake my central nervous system like a, a prisoner shaking chains, just trying to sh- knock some of this feces loose. And <laughs> after that, I feel, you know, I feel refreshed. I feel like then I'm ready to really tackle the day. I mean, there's, there's nothing better than just having unlimited amount of time to sit on the toilet. It's beautiful. It, it, it's honestly <laughs> the closest most uh, Westerners get to meditation. Mm-hmm. Like that's way. that the one thing Kramer got wrong. Instead mm-hmm. of living in the shower, he should have attempted to just live in the toilet. Yeah, you should have combined them. <laughs> attach a shower to the top of the toilet. You sit on it naked. You got a day <laughs> underneath. That covers everything on the other side. A couple quick washes for where the lid was. You're good. Yeah, taking shits are nice. Probably the most pleasant human feeling. Mm-hmm. Honestly, half the reason I stick with nicotine. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm addicted to it, but also, like, it just really helps. Uh, I need that extra boost sometimes. Do you get constipated? Yeah, because I eat like shit. <laughs> Especially over this summer, we were eating nothing but, you know, like, barbecue, ribs, pulled pork, hot dogs, hamburger. Like, it was basically, like, it was a four-month vacation, but it made it very difficult to, like, because that's another thing about living in a family unit. You have to coordinate meals. And there were entire, like, days in a row where me and Jenna would just be eating the dinner that other people made for us. And, like, yeah, it's nice sometimes. Like, you get the mutual help out. But sometimes you just want to, like, eat and take a bite out of a stick of pepperoni and call it a day. You know what I'm saying, Steinfeld? <laughs> no, I, I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Are they, you know, um, meals. are they a very tight family unit? Is it, you know, what, what, every, everyone does everything together? 
Definitely. And, you know, they're the, uh, you know, of course, you know a lot more about my family than the uh, listeners probably do. Mm -hmm. One of them. But, uh, so, I mean, Alex's family is the same way. I, I, you know, and both, both of our families are totally not like that at all. It's very much everyone, everyone survives for themselves. Exactly. You know, yourself or you die. (laughs) Right. Like the the, the sentiment really didn't carry over. Uh, (laughs) And the worst part about it is it makes you feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Because you, you're very used to doing things in a particular way, and especially if you're coming from a place where your family really wasn't that together and involved, and it was you know just eat or be eaten, <laughs> and you get put into the, the you know your classical American nuclear family where everything you know is brought up before the you know the DNA council, <laughs> and you just have, you don't get that extra level of privacy. I'm sorry, the like, DNA council. Yeah, you know a family. Okay. <laughs> you know, you know how that's what you meant. It, it forces us to want to have children so that it can replicate itself, almost like a evil ghost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's, a, that's how I look at my family. <laughs> well, I'm happy to break the cycle by not breeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I want kids. I've been thinking more and more about that. Mm-hmm. It's like sort of on and off and... It's, it's, it just seems a little irresponsible to bring a human being into this world. Right. I think it's irresponsible to bring a human being into any world. <laughs> There's definitely a, a hardcore, I know, at least on the internet, because everyone's angry about something on the internet, of people who are just like, stop breeding, let it die. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I can't like categorically agree with it, you know, just because I don't want to, you know, make more of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. <laughs> It's crazy. Like this, no, no one ever asks asked to be born. No. They, no one ever had a choice in it. Mm-hmm. I had my, you know, I had my umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. I think someone whispered something to me early. <laughs> like, kid, you don't know what you're in for. Yeah, I, I, uh, I had some issues breathing too. I had a, like a clogged um, yeah. air pipe. Because you're just born this. We got the same message. <laughs> this helpless, shitting, vomiting little worm creature, <laughs> and then slowly but surely. You just uh, are taught social and, you know, personal conditions that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you just uh, culture an identity for yourself. And by then, you just completely forgot that you just got put well, in incredibly something uh, that I always, I always find interesting. So whenever, like, you're out at a restaurant or a park or something, mm-hmm. you see the kids. The kids do whatever the hell they want. They're playing. They're yelling at each other. They have no concept of what socially acceptable behavior is it's like when like i I think back to myself like when did i stop being like that and become Mm -hmm. this thing in public that society wants me to be yeah when did i decide it's not okay to just shit my pants wherever (laughs) i feel like (laughs) no matter how hard you basically (laughs) want that or now you know that there's that there's consequences no mm-hmm. one's gonna change it for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that has to happen. I know, right? We could have been, uh, we we could have just been living out in the woods, just shitting on branches, <laughs> rubbing our ass cheeks against like pine trees. Yeah, yeah. There, there's still people that do it that way. I know the way God intended. Mm-hmm. This this podcast is supported by uh, Ted Kaczynski. Uh, Relief Fund. <laughs> uh, <laughs> donate in the Patreon below. We're gonna get him out. <laughs> He's still alive. Yeah, Ted's um, amazingly the Unabomber is still alive. He's old as dirt wow. now. He's in his late seventies, but apparently he still like responds to people who write to him. And like, I do actually want to read his. Uh, you want to like, read it? Yeah, no, his uh, manifesto. Yeah. Uh, 
industrial society and its failures, I think it's called. Apparently, it, it is somewhat to be taken, like, you can take it as a serious piece of, like, I don't know, interpretive, like, historical writing. Like, because it is essentially just, like, you know, any other piece of, like, political antagonistic literature, you know? Interesting. I mean, the man was a genius at certain oh, no, levels. Absolutely. Like, mathematically, he was What's a genius. hard to, like, reconcile about him? Yeah. Is that he spent most of his adult life living in a one-bedroom cabin in Montana, <laughs> living off of his parents' money, shitting in a bucket, <laughs> and making bombs out of wood. <laughs> yeah. The dude know what he knew what he liked to do. Oh, yeah. And he did it. He lived his best life. And you know what? Honestly... You can find good in everyone. Big Ted Kaczynski energy. (laughs) But yeah, uh, (laughs) this is completely unrelated, but you know Terrence McKenna, right? Yeah. After I watched... On a personal level. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all know him on a spiritual level. He does (laughs) it in our dreams every night. (laughs) And he... uh, I was was listening to one of his, uh, you know, one of his many, like, four-hour YouTube compilations that people made up mm-hmm. where they put, like, trippy designs in the background and they got, like, Tool or some other mm-hmm. ambient, uh, like, droning band. I, I, haven't li- I haven't seen those. I'll have to check them out. There are a lot of them. The man yeah. spoke a lot and people on the internet really like making those kind of videos about him. Mm-hmm. But he sounds a lot like the Unabomber. Really? <laughs> and, the, uh, yeah, I watched a documentary on Netflix that they have uh, – the Unabomber in his own words. Like it was I, I haven't seen that. I think I started it. It's decent, like as far as documentaries go. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> he's not my as far as serial killers go, and I, I do have an interest in serial killers. I'm not mm-hmm. I don't know. He's he's interesting. He's a very weird one. Yeah, the bombers are always weird. Yeah. Like he, So for, for anyone who, who doesn't know, um, Ted Kaczynski isolated himself in a cabin in Montana and would make bombs and would mail them out to he, he liked to target academics for some reason. Yeah, he was a big, he was himself an academic, maybe. Yeah, he, he attacked a couple like uh, economists. I think mm-hmm. he attacked. Uh, he was a lot of universities because I think that that's what Unabomber actually stands for. It's like university and airline bomber. Yeah, something to, like that. Was it, was, to, it was all sent through the mail. Yeah, exactly. Good old U.S. Postal Service. Mm-hmm. Thank you, USPS. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we get it there, no matter what it is. <laughs> uh, but I think there was one in New- he attacked in New Jersey. I think one of his one of his like last attacks was against uh, a legal firm that had represented uh, Exxon Valdez. I think during one of their oil spills. Okay. So there's definitely a little targeted ideology there. Mm-hmm. He's just a fascinating man. Like honestly, like, I don't want to disparage him, but I think he's at least a little bit on the spectrum because. Some we're all somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah, but from a very he demonstrated a superlative ability for um like mathematics and like memorization and a complete deficit of social interactions yes. and learning social cues. Yeah, I from a very early age. Yeah. And I I'm blanking on this and I, I mean if you want to listen to a, a podcast about Ted Kaczynski, I recommend Last Podcast on the Left. Yeah, they do you. awesome biopics on serial killers i don't remember if he had like the fucked up childhood that a lot of serial killers no i don't think he did he He, uh, was mostly i think his parents were also academics i think he had a fairly like standard childhood Mm -hmm. i can't remember if he had any like oh no i think when he was a kid uh, like very young like maybe like three or four he had some sort of a viral infection and he had to be hospitalized for long like almost i think months Wow. Because this is back in what, the 40s or the 50s when he was a kid. Um, 
I don't. I wouldn't say that. At all. I'm not sure. Yeah, he, he's very old, <laughs> but uh, apparently he was uh, there for a long time and was deprived of a lot of contact with his parents because they they weren't allowed near him mm-hmm. uh, for any extended period of time. And then when he came out, he was extremely like isolated and cold, and was very a uh, very stark uh, transition from uh, what was just a very normal, active, you know, running around sticking his fingers in outlets kind of kid. You know, like all kids are. Yep. All right, so I, I know so, you had a – oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you listened to one of the most recent uh, last podcasts on the left about uh, Herbert Mullen. No, I haven't. Oh, it's good. But uh, 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 Marcus, one of the hosts of the show, goes onto a little bit of a tangent about uh, the lead theory of crime where <laughs> the, the concept is that by like the – I think the late 60s or the early 70s, uh, it became very apparent that the <laughs> – amount of lead being in uh, car gasoline like automobiles and just machinery is just incredibly toxic to the human body and is literally in all of our breathable air and so right around the 60s and 70s is when they cut it off and they said we're transitioning to unleaded gasoline from now on but it takes the effects of lead about like 20 years or so to really kind of work their way out of the population by the time they've been introduced because that lead is one of those materials one of those elements where once you get exposed to it the damage is kind of done Mm -hmm. like it really just kind of stays in your body and in your like bones and in your like brain for a very long time i i believe the people who uh, made and sold lead for lead products knew about this and completely denied it and pushed their product through anyway Oh, no, yeah. Like, people have known about the dangers of lead for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the, his theory is that the rise in the, like, obviously, when it comes to serial killers, you can't get better than the 1970s. And yeah. it is just chock, chock-a-block. Full Golden of, age. Yeah, young men, usually in their <laughs> 20s to 40s. Kemper, Ramirez. Chase. Zodiac, I believe. Bundy. Mm-hmm. Fucking Dahmer. Yeah, Gary Ridgeway, BTK. Mm-hmm. All of these guys were running around at the same time. and uh, But, like, again, this is right on the crux of when these things would start to show because we are, the explosion of the automobile in America started a lot, pretty much after World War II, roughly 20 years earlier, where we already had leaded gasoline and lots of stuff, but just the amount of automobiles that were being made and the amount of new people that were driving in America and everywhere we exploded. And so the amount of lead in our atmosphere was not even our atmosphere. Atmosphere makes it sound like it's up front. It's actually, when you're at the hot dog stand getting the hot dog, you're you're being exposed to inordinate quantities of this incredibly dangerous chemical that makes people more violent, cuts down on their uh, ability to make like uh, cohesive decisions or like think rapidly. It breaks down like your uh, short-term memory. Like it, it, lead, you don't want you don't want lead <laughs> really anywhere near your body, much less float it flying around in the air. Damn. But then, yeah, about twenty years after we started really ramping it up, we had a massive shoot in not only serial killers but crime in general, wow. uh, burglaries, uh, you know, assaults, arsons, pretty much crime across the board exploded in the uh, like the '60s and the '70s. And there's lots of reasons for that. You know, civil unrest. You know. More people were just living in cities. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people on the right blamed, you know, the fall of, you know, classic American culture, which is really just, you know, like punching your children in the face and raping your wife on a nightly basis and then going to church on Sunday, you know. (laughs) But now your daughter's wearing a a shirt with no sleeves on it and your son's like, I don't want to go to war. And you're just like, this is the downfall of Western civilization. (laughs) 
But he, he tied it all up at the end, uh, Marcus, about uh, okay. how, uh, so like he just reads through like the, the symptoms of prolonged lead exposure being like, you know, irritableness, quickness mm. to violence, lack of, of uh, like foresight and like appreciation for consequences for your action. <laughs> and he's like, uh, you know, there's probably a, a large quath of our society right now who probably sounds very familiar to you. And, <laughs> you know, you just go on a, you know, you can't go to the front page of Reddit without seeing five different videos of someone over the age of 50 just screaming at someone holding up their cell phone. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of anything anymore. Right. It's all just a big blur. Just, as a rule of thumb, don't go outside and yell at people. If you're going to yeah. yell at people, do it in your own home. Right. Do it to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, I know you had a, uh, a few hot button issues that uh, you wanted to get to. Should we, should we keep bullshitting, or you want to you want to get down to business? Let's get down to brass tacks. All right, let's, let's, let's put our dicks in it. <laughs> All right, what you, what, you, what you got for the people? All right, let's start off with a big one. I've been waiting for it, Seinfeld. It's been a long time coming. November, New Jersey legal recreational marijuana. So it's it's on the ballot. It's on the ballot. And the, you know, uh, it was going to be the main goal of one of the uh, administrations. Murphy's, uh, you know, I forget. Oh, it's so hard to remember how long this man's been governor. Somewhere between a year and two years. Um, I feel like it's longer than that because wasn't Christie done in 2016? Man, I think you're right. And I don't think there was another one between him and Murph. Nope. So, yeah. yeah. Either Murph or uh, Guagnagno, whatever her name was. Yeah, man, time really fucking slips away. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, like, that was one of the selling points of his run when they were still the election, that he would have marijuana legalized in 100 days. And the internal bureaucracy, the hive mind of New Jersey politics was like, eh, no, you won't. <laughs> so is it, uh, is it on the ballot um, legal to possess or is it also, will it also be legal to sell? I believe it is both. And of course they both come with stipulations. Okay. Because Vermont is legal to possess, but you can't legally sell it, mm. which is Crazy. stupid. Legalized stupid. drug dealers. <laughs> God damn it. These are the heart of, you know, they say prostitution was the oldest job, but someone had to sell that prostitute drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a, uh, I, I think one of the stipulations was a uh, home grow is explicitly not allowed. Like you won't be able to grow marijuana in your home like you can in other States, which is a bummer, but well, at least it'll be better than just, you know, I know it, it baffles me. It's, it is 2020. Mm-hmm. We're New Jersey. We, I mean, we're in year and we're near like uh 200 million of human being. Mm-hmm. You'd think we'd be at the point where we're past this bullshit. Nope. But then again, you think we'd be at the point where we're past a lot of bullshit. Well, Steinfeld, you just said it yourself. 20,000 years of civilization and marijuana was legal for most of it. Yeah. <laughs> it was only in, on, in this particular area of land now called the United States of America about 100, yeah, literally about 100 years ago. I mean, I think it's been illegal in most countries for a while. Oh, well, yeah, but a lot of that's because of the United States. Okay, it would be interesting to dive into the history of that. I don't really know much about right. it in other countries. That would honestly be a great uh, like, study for like a book. Just yeah. trace the different veins of drug criminalization. Because I know for like 
large parts of the Arabic world, alcohol was strictly illegal. It was haram. But you had people fucking taking giant bushes of <laughs> ancient uh, wild-grown uh, weed plants and then two elephants with uh, bricks on their butt just smush them together <laughs> and turns in a hat. That's not how they did it, but <laughs> that's how you, sort of how you make hash. Mm. And they're just getting high as balls, praising a lot. So, legal marijuana on the ballot in mm. New Jersey uh, 2020. Do you, do you know if it's on the ballot anywhere else? That's a good question. I actually don't know. It's kind of been getting a... To turn on the news is so fearful these days. Yeah, I'm going to do a quick search. Because I can. Uh, so, yeah, quick Google search says something about Nebraska. Let's see. Nebraska hey. court invalidates proposed... 2020 marijuana medical marijuana legalization so no not not yay oh, oh man let's see. election 2020 marijuana legalization oh, the internet's being slow <laughs> all right let's let's push ahead and then i'll come back to that at some point um so gotcha it i really thought there was gonna be more of a a push after the success in Colorado and Washington, but we really haven't gotten that that much. It's, it's really, it's been a slow go and a hard push. Thanks Obama. Yep. It was slower than I thought. You know, I definitely had the same feeling when Colorado turned over that it was going to be a wave (laughs) and that wave has come very, very slowly over the last four or five years. All right, let's, here we go. Uh, Four states are voting on adult use recreational cannabis, uh, Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, South Dakota. Three states are voting on medical, Mississippi, Nebraska, South Dakota. Mississippi. Yeah, Mississippi. Oregon voters will consider two separate drug reform measures. One would legalize the medical use of psilocybin. The other would criminalize small amounts of all drugs. Ooh, that's a fun Damn. one. Psilocybin. I love it. I mean, didn't Oakland uh, decriminalize psilocybin? I believe so. I think that there was somewhere in uh, Oregon that dis, uh, decriminalized it. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Denver. These, you know, these beautiful forward-thinking places just surrounded to the teeth by white supremacists <laughs> and hard-right conservatives. Every, like, yeah, Oregon, you got Portland, you got uh, maybe Eugene, and then the rest is just mountains and woods with <laughs> militia camps in it. Yeah, I've heard it's beautiful. Oh, no, yeah, it's, well, it is a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's Twin Peaks territory. <laughs> is, uh, is that not where, um, didn't Wild Wild Country happen in Oregon, or is that Washington? Yeah, that yeah. was, uh, I think it was Oregon. I think so, too. Yeah, because it's exactly where you go when you want to be away from everybody else and live your own way of life. But they lived next to like a, a little like backwoods, like good old Christian town. <laughs> yeah, that was bad planning on their part. Yeah. Because like, you know, if you could call it a town, it might still qualify as a village. <laughs> like, I think there were like only, there might have been less than a thousand people there, I think. It was, I remember being incredibly small. It was small, but they seemed uh, pretty developed. Oh, yeah. They, they weren't dying of polio at this no. point. 
but they were there explicitly. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You just move to this incredibly quiet, close, distant place just to get away from it all. And then these uh, just make an entire uh, uh, foundation right next door. Yeah. <laughs> They're just coming into town, saying weird stuff, doing yoga, screaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to um, maybe dive, dive a little deeper mm-hmm. into the marijuana. Uh, what, what do you think a nationwide legal recreational marijuana industry would look like in the United States of America? And let's say the year, let, let's say it's 2024. Let, let, let me mm-hmm. rephrase the question. What will marijuana be like in america and let's let's say 10 years where where is this all going because you know 10 years okay i think you can definitely start to see the signs of business latching on to marijuana i mean it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. profitable substance and i expect it to make huge amounts of money so yeah it already does yeah (laughs) <laughs> at what point are we going to start seeing marijuana commercials during the Super Bowl with half-naked women and uh, maybe dogs talking too? So- something ridiculous. Oh, yeah. You've got to have a dog talking if it's a marijuana ad. <laughs> they they got to take it back. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, 10 years, I would see, I would hope that federal legalization would have happened and that hopefully at least a few of the big states that would, would that have already built up a solid amount of Industry. I can't remember if you talked about this with Zach or if I talked about this with Zach. I but, Zach and I didn't talk about marijuana at all. Okay, but yeah, currently it is still extremely, like, financially disadvantageous to start a, like a marijuana business in a, a state that's already legalized. Like, it takes a lot of money because yeah. you can't do so many things that come with being a federally recognized. You have to work around so much stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just to get it off the ground, like it's like a restaurant. Like you're gonna, you gotta expect to not be getting paid for like two years. Damn. If you actually want to do it, that's crazy. So Those... Maybe a federal legalism. So in ten years, I would see probably a few big names. I think that's the really the effect that you know actual legal commercialization will have on marijuana in the USA. Like we'll probably just see some giants develop pretty quickly. From we'll see the Anheuser Anheuser Busch of. Uh... Oh yeah. Of marijuana, yeah. yeah, I I think that's um, that's that's inevitable in the. Yeah, the I don't think. Capital. I think it's going to take a while. I mean, just because of how marijuana is, and because it already comes from a very rich, uh, outlaw culture of just enjoying the different like types of it and strains of it, you already kind of accomplish what you know, breweries do for people who enjoy beer. Even though most of them are already owned by you know large corporations, you get uh, you get selectivity. And then you get just like general stuff, like you get Budweiser, just regular old Budweiser, or you could get a, you know, the shape of hops to come. One of these great craft brews that uh, Brandon turned me on to. It's like 8% IPA. Oh, wow. It's good though. Oh, it gets you some drunk. But <laughs> I think that's sort of what we're going to see. We're going to see uh, a few big names that are really going to get the ball rolling. And I think just in the way America works, those companies are probably going to be gobbled up by larger companies that probably don't have anything to do with like I wouldn't be surprised if half these guys are owned by Amazon and Google and <laughs> Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're just running it as the facade of uh you know your your old town like uh dispensary. 
Mm-hmm. But, I think that's a lot more likely. If a uh, homegirl is allowed, get you sixteen-year-olds to deal it behind your high school, just so right. it feels authentic. Exactly. You know, you got to respect the culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think people are going to forget that. Honestly, I don't think there's going to be. Uh, it's going to take a while before people really appreciate the fact that we lock people up for decades and decades just mi- literally millions of people just for using this plan. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be one of those things where we look back and think what the hell was wrong with those people. Like, I, I think it's maybe not like the way we look at slavery because slavery is so objectively, although this is really objectively bad too. Like, pe- Absolutely. like people's lives get and, uh, I mean, essentially the way the, uh, the prisons work, it sort of is slavery because if you put people in prison for long periods of time, and those prisons are private, and they license off the work of their prisoners. It is essentially free labor. Yeah. No, we. Uh, I I don't know if I want to get into um <laughs> the yeah it's big the, the drug war of uh of Americans that I that that to me feels like it really deserves its own podcast. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> Trust me, there are people much better equipped to have that conversation than us. I mean, you. I the, sure you learned about the legal simple. system in your uh, several hours at uh, the TCNJ jail. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they told me everything. They told me all their secrets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> their weird Xerox machine. I still can't get over that. They use a Xerox machine. Xerox. I mean, it isn't literally. It isn't literally that, but it is a scanner that they push your thumb on, and it sucked. They kept having to do the same fingers over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, they they needed more funding, man. Yeah, need more funding. Well, no, I, don't think, I don't think the TCNJ campus police. <laughs> no, but it, I think it is. A, it's defunding the police for me is such a weird issue because, in some ways, like they need more money and more resources to be better at their job. Like they need money for training, money for you know, and really any kind of training. More for good God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> make it a little bit harder and make them think a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, the better way is much more long-winded, which is that the police just cover large parts they really shouldn't be covering. <laughs> you know, because, you know, people having, you know, people, people with diagnosed mental disorders, mm-hmm. act, like acting in a way that the police take as hostile. Yeah. We, I mean, d- a dude, a kid with autism was shot literally last week. Yeah, Thirteen years old. I mean, uh, and and white, and white. So, so what's your excuse this time? Honestly, the, not not the excuse, but the the explanation that goes into defunding the police is that somebody else should get sent to handle these situations. No, I I completely agree with that. I think the issue. I, the issue gets to the very core of our society and how we educate our children. I mean, this is, this is defunding the police that the whole idea behind it, it's, it seems more like attacking a symptom rather than attacking the root of the problem. To oh, me. No, yeah, there's, well, there's definitely lots of roots, but what, what do you mean in particular? I mean that, um, we should be focusing more and ironically i think this is part of the argument of people that support defunding the police but focusing more of our attention on education 
and good schooling and making sure kids don't fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I agree with the defund the police people on that issue. I think we just have a difference of opinion about what the core problem is, or maybe I don't. Oh, no, no. I, I think a lot of them would agree with you that yeah. increasing the, the, the social wealth of the very poor and disparaged people in our nation would do a lot to combat uh, that stuff. But unfortunately, that would also mean scaling back police. The yeah, idea well, of making I, a safer country. I think, uh, country I think part of the issue is the way the message has been communicated rather than the content of the message itself. Oh, no, yes. They're, they're, like, a large parts of the message have been co-opted and borrowed and incorporated into other movements. And I still, like, even though 90, like, I forget what the post was, 87%, 92% of the protests have been uh, peaceful. Like, it's just, it's in things are going to come up. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think... Uh, just to tie it back into our special uh, 9-11 episode, <laughs> I think a lot of this has to do with the attitude we've developed as Americans about how our government is allowed. Because at the turn of the century, at the turn of the millennium, we saw some of the biggest protests ever in our country for the World Trade Organization, uh, just having our conference in uh, Seattle. And it turned up hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. who protested and then they were immediately met with the, the very similar scenes that we've been seeing all summer of police brutality of uh soldier-like SWAT teams being called in to create human barriers and beat p- uh, protesters back with pepper spray mm-hmm. and yes at that at that one too for the world trade organization <laughs> wow. this protest was about they still had uh looters people dressed in all black who were just going around breaking windows, mm-hmm. uh, people who would actively antagonize the police while the other protesters around them uh, told them to stop because they were there peacefully. Well, I think trying to go a level deeper with that, I don't think there's any unity on the left anymore. And I well, think- the left knows that. <laughs> <laughs> there's really never been any unity on the left. Good God. <laughs> This is why you can very easily, you know, like laugh at the at memes where uh, uh, the right says uh, the radical left or the liberal communists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whenever they use this language that insinuates that we are like in any way a collective group of like-minded people, they're right in the essence that we're all in the same places fighting each other <laughs> about how the other one is wrong. Now they haven't read the correct theory in order to know that their method of implementing a, a communist welfare society is not going to work out. It's basically a, any leftist group on the internet is infighting. This is just, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do actually, actually want to dive into a, a deeper level about a discussion with socialism, about social, blech, about socialism with you potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of want to stay, and I, I think a big problem of, or a, a cause of why the left seems to be, people on the left seem to be fracturing so much, is there's, there's no leader. And when there's no leader, you naturally start to see people branch out into smaller and smaller subgroups. And yeah, that's, that gets right to the heart of what the fuck is happening this November. I mean, Joe Biden and Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Yep. 
we, and, we just saw Hillary and Trump. And it kind of seems like we want to do it all over again. Yep. I wanted the other guy. <laughs> I and Honestly, I think it goes right into what we've been talking about, about leaders and the left not trusting each other. Bernie Sanders is, without a doubt, the most successful American leftist politician in the modern age. Mm-hmm. He got so much farther than anybody, including his fans, really expected him to. Yeah. Like, right like up, up until you know, February into March, he was holding a pretty clear and like decisive second, mm-hmm. not in first in some places. And people on the left still don't like him. Yeah. They, uh, like there are valid critiques. Like he could have been a better speaker. He could have, uh, you know, put his ideas in a different way to make him more palatable to, you know, average Joe America. There are plenty of people who dis- who call Bernie Sanders a, a liberal, just but not like as in not a as in someone who doesn't actually care about implementing, you know, socialistic type practices and healthcare and education in the in America <laughs> because they think he betrays well one he didn't make it so a lot of people just blame him for that and saying that this is irre- irrefutable proof that socialists can't make it in America despite one getting farther than they've ever gone before and people like me who just say like yeah there but we got a lot of ground and I think if you want to look to leaders, I think we're probably seeing more of those now than we have in the last couple of years, like a couple of decades, I mean. Well, I was very excited um, at the number of people, at the number of candidates um, for the Democratic nominee that there were to start with. It really did I seem like... found that exciting? <laughs> I found it nauseating. Uh, well, I, I think in previously... There's really only been one, two, or maybe three people that you would think had a chance. Like, you know, back when this process was starting, there were three or four people that at least at least had a chance and a slew of others. So I think what Bernie Sanders did in 2016 was show that you didn't have to be the one establishment personality in order to get national attention. And I think that inspired a lot of other people like Tulsi Gabbard, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, you know, whoever to go and take a shot, which I think is good. Yeah, definitely. We ended up at the same place anyway, but. If it wasn't for a two party system, we could actually get some really interesting stuff going. Yeah. You had three or four parties spread across. I, I don't know. I, I'm really getting fed up, gotten fed up with, uh, with the two-party system. I, I, I get why people are out in the streets breaking shit. Yeah. This is frustrating. Like, you feel the obstacles to positive change are just overwhelmingly large. Yeah. And when people feel that, they lash out. Exactly. Or they just lock themselves in, drink. <laughs> Smoke a bunch of weed, binge watch Tiger King again, you know. So, so how do we how do we fix the the United States political system? Give me give me your three basic steps. Okay, step one: buy an airplane. One okay. of those crop dusters they use uh, for dusting oh, God, crops. I've heard this. Uh, to get a lot of LSD, okay. and I think you know what step number three is. <laughs> um, no, I I agree with the spirit of your idea. Perhaps not the. <laughs> 
You know what? You're telling me this incredibly uh, complex, creative, uh, active, deliberate, and abject bioterrorism <laughs> it might not be a good idea? Well, I was going to say you should do it through assault rifles, just, just to be more American about it. We're going to lose a lot of babies. Little have a, get a tranquilizer gun, fill the darts with psychedelic drugs. Mm -hmm. Just dress up like a protest, go to town. Um, no, I think if there is one way to quickly solve a deep, deep level of bias and hatred in one human being toward another, it is probably to dissolve their ego through psychedelic drugs. Yeah, buddy. I've been telling you for years. I mean, there, there is really no more powerful way that I have come across in my life to really, to, to just shake how you feel about every single thing. Exactly. That's why I've always believed that these things should be legal, they should be open, and they should be available <laughs> in every kind of setting. Yeah, I I, uh, I totally agree with that. Um, and God, it's it like on one level, it seems like such a radical radical idea. Right. Legalize psychedelic drugs because of what we have been fed growing up. Like I remember the the first time you suggested to me, "Hey, I think I'm going to take mushrooms." I thought this guy is out of his fucking mind. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> And then, then you took it. I was there. It was uh, you, me, and Justin. The, the mm -hmm. two of you were both tripping. I think Justin had tripped before, possibly. Maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. And, um, God, you said so many things. Yeah. So quickly. I was off my rocker. My, my, rig, left, my rig left the road. <laughs> Beautiful experience. It was, it was extremely light, but, like, even I think that's what the act of doing psychedelic drugs takes away from the image that we've been fed for our whole lives. Because mm -hmm. ninety percent of it isn't even the walls are squiggly and the colors seem very bright. The ninety percent of it is just how you feel inside, <laughs> just abruptly changes. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you as a um, as a courtesy to any of my listeners who haven't had any experience in psychedelic drugs and may be curious to, in as much detail as you like, describe what it feels like to be tripping. Ooh. Maybe talk a little bit about the best way to go about it if someone is interested in doing that. All right. I'll, say, I'll start off with the best way to go about it. Okay. I think tried and true, first time, go small. You know, mm. have, like take a 16th of mushrooms, maybe a little more if you want to just rev it up a bit. And uh, half tab of acid, if that's what you're starting off with. I think those are both good, reasonable things to start off with. And then, like I said, you got to really focus on how you feel inside. Like, I think people should just forget about, you know, staring at the rug until it starts moving or looking at your hands every five minutes, telling, trying to figure out, am I feeling it? Am I feeling it? You just got to let go of that and just let yourself just be in moods and have thoughts. And eventually you'll just start to notice it feeling a little different. Yeah. It'll be a little groovier. I think uh, you can agree, like very low doses, it's just a little pep in your step. <laughs> I don't think I've, I've personally done enough experience in uh, varying the doses to really know. Um, I mean, I'm talking to a man that's taken five grams of mushrooms. So. Yeah, <laughs> more, more on that later. But, 
Yeah, when you start off, like like I said, 16th of mushrooms or less, or a tab of acid, half a tab of acid, for starters, uh, it can be very innocuous, especially the first time. It's very hard to pin down what the feeling is that you're feeling. You might just feel that, you know, something's different and you're not really sure what it is. You I, might have a very, like, outward experience where you do see visuals and connect with them in, in this psychedelic, like, mood. That very well may happen, but usually the lower you go, the less likelihood of that happening is. Yeah. Uh, I, my first, usually pretty much any time I do it, I, I find it helpful to have someone there to talk about how I'm feeling mm -hmm. because it is just so crazy. You want to express that. Like the, the last time I did psychedelics, I was pretty much totally by myself for the whole time I was tripping. Mm -hmm. And it was a really unique experience. That's the only time I've done it. And I would, I would do it. I would definitely do it again, but it definitely got a little like skip like creepy at some point, like, holy shit. I'm just, and oh, it's, yeah. like, I'm just sitting in my room doing what I always do. And, uh, for, for some reason, cause I, cause I took a little, little tiny tap of acid. It's all different. Yeah. I think it's a uh, definitely for people who are starting off, wait a couple times. Honestly, I'd say more than a couple times before you actually decide to do it by yourself. Oh yeah, definitely. But that saying that it is my favorite way to do it. <laughs> really? The way I would always do it, I would recognize that you're in control of the situation 100%. Mm -hmm. You're in charge of, like, if you're hungry, you're going to have to feed yourself later. So you might as well get some food ready, you know, get a nice Reuben or something. Make sure it's got the Russian already on it so that when you're deep in the paint, you can't focus on anything. You just grab it and you start eating it. And that'll keep you alive. <laughs> <laughs> These are the things you have to worry about when there's uh, not somebody else there to ask, like, oh, you want to get pizza? <laughs> <laughs> Now, my, I, I recall my experiences uh, with food while tripping have been very odd. Like, sometimes I just don't eat the whole time. And um, I think particularly when we were at Zoom with Roman, um, mm -hmm. I just kept eating. <laughs> yeah, chow down. The, the, the kielbasa, the pierogies, the oh. stuffed cabbage. Oh, so good. good. Oh, because at a certain point, your body does get hungry. It's something that isn't really talked about that much, but certainly as a large man, I felt it. The, these substances do take physical work, yes. even if you are just sitting down. I mean, yeah, you're, you're well, I, I don't know the, um, what's really happening in the body. I know in your brain, parts of your brain that normally don't communicate at all, start communicating with each other. And it's probably pretty metabol metabolically intensive. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I know it definitely raises your heart rate a little bit. Your skin gets a little clammy. Your spine gets that, that tingle. But, yeah, if you're going to take it by yourself, you got to be able to, you know, got to fetch your own water. <laughs> <laughs> you're the whole, but the, the side to that is that you're the one in charge. You can do whatever you want. And I think there's a great liberty to being able to do that alone. I think it requires a certain level of skill in being able to concentrate on your mood, make intelligent enough decisions about when you're going to do it and why you're going to do it that really play a lot into just being able to let yourself have full control of your experience. Because obviously when you're with other people, it's not an option. You're only thinking about a shared experience that you guys are all going through together. Yeah. And it can still be awesome and it can still be, you know, transformative and eye-opening and also really, really fun. 
but then you you lose the chance to just kind of sit in silence with yourself for a while whether you're just watching a movie or tv show or maybe you're doing some writing or some kind of art really whatever whatever people do when they're tripping alone masturbating i don't know (laughs) whatever you want free country yep (laughs) um all right i want to um well wherever we go is is up to you i I wanted to to throw out two suggestions Mm um one i think it would be a crime um and we we don't have to do this today Mm -hmm. but at some point i i gotta get you on here talking about socialism oh yeah um the other option or the other recommendation i had was uh was folk fest which Mm -hmm. oddly seems to be a form of socialism so, uh, you know, th- those are two suggestions, but the, okay. the ship is yours to steer. Mm-hmm. All right. I think I'll, I'll take it from psychedelics and bring it into Folk Fest. Yeah, that, that, that's a good transition. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the small experiences. You know, you get the, the light euphoria, a little bit of change in mood, a little bit of change in your thought patterns. Things get a little funny. Large doses is when you cross over. And I think this is just from personal experience, but I think all psychedelic drugs have a crossing over point, whether it's more commonly like brought up in things like DMT or salvia, where if you, you just enter such a strong, like dreamlike experience, it's literally like trying to bust out of a bubble and you just got to keep doing more and more as fast as possible to get there. And I think even with things like mushrooms and LSD, there is a, like a grace period where after like a half hour or so of you ingesting it, where you're just slowly climbing up and up and up. And then you just enter a sort of foggy space and then at the other side of it, you're just looking at it like, Oh, I'm tripping. Yeah. <laughs> you're in the house now for sure. As they say in the Dr. Trey song. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, there's no ignoring it. There's no more walking it back or like it, it takes the guessing out of it. You're no longer I, guessing. Yeah. It. The last time I took acid, which was the time alone that I was just talking about, I took it and then I forgot that I took it for a little bit. Uh, and then I started tripping. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, I forgot I did this. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good thing to forget. <laughs> I got I, I gotta go to work. <laughs> but yeah, when you get to the higher doses, there really is no ignoring it, which I think takes a little bit of the anxiety about it. You just just wait. It it, it works, it'll get to you. There's no there's no choice. In it. Mm-hmm. and you just let yourself enter that space and if you can get in there comfortably and you have a good control of your thoughts and you're able to take care of yourself i think some of your best trips will happen like that when you're alone nice like some of my best trips were just at my desk in college writing just sitting in a chair tip tap tip tap mm-hmm. take a sip of a beer little uh, mflb hit every now and then mm-hmm. and my brain's just going wild yeah <laughs> So um, I, are, you, are, you, uh, are you writing anything right now? Not right now. I'm just finished moving into my new place uh, with my girlfriend, Jenna, uh, North Plainfield. We love it. Uh, but I'm going to have a, a set-up desk in my room now, facing out the window. That's going to be exclusively for just that, because I have been sli- sleeping on it for a while. Okay. You got some, uh, s- some ideas going around the old noggin there? Oh, yeah. Big, uh, the biggest one I have is about uh, basically our upbringing uh, in Scotch Plains as the primary environment. Wow. And 
I want to take a lot of inspiration from, you know, uh, McGarris about uh, you and me in your backyard and like your, your shed, you know, how's that for a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just, the, you know, particularly for me and the upbringing that I had, I think it would, it would do me a lot of good. And I think I could actually make a decent piece of fiction out of it. Okay. Is that something you want to get more into now or you want to uh, keep, keep a lid on that for the time being? Yeah, well, just the, the basic of it is it's mostly about like, I, I want to through it unpack a lot of the stuff that happened to me as I was growing up with a mother who was an alcoholic and just kind of sliding into out of that experience into going to college, meeting very crazy people, smoking lots of weed, doing lots of psychedelic drugs, and then slide that back into just hanging out in Scotch Plains with the boys. Okay. You know, when I think of what I'm probably going to think of as my formative years, these prob- these are then. The the years that you are will be writing about. Yeah, I think that's probably what it's going to be. It's going to be like tail end of middle school, maybe beginning of high school, and then going into college and probably not ending too far from around here. Honestly, I feel like the coronavirus would probably be a good point to stop. Like takes a sudden turn and it, it's, uh, suddenly it's a pandemic novel. Yeah. Everyone gets wiped out. That's how it ends. <laughs> one, I've, I want to write it for two, for the aforementioned reason of just unpacking a lot of stuff from my growing up, but for two other big reasons, we have very funny friends and we did a lot of funny, funny things. And <laughs> you have a lot of like weird. Scotch Plains as a town is a very funny town. So it's a very, very strange place. Nice okay. place. I like it. Twin Peaks in Union County, man. <laughs> but uh, like uh, one of the big things I wanted to write, like one of the things that genocized this is I started writing a little bit uh, while I was still in college about, uh, I wanted to do a year by year of every single folk fest I've attended. Okay. And I think that'd be a great thing to talk about next. Fucking Philly Folk Fest. I think it was supposed to be 60 this year. Rest in peace, 2020. Oh, this was going to be its 60th year? I think I was wrong last year and a girl very loudly told me I was wrong <laughs> at Folk Fest because that's what that's the nice thing about this old world that used to exist people could just penetrate if you were just talking people would just hear you even if they didn't know you yeah and now we have to record it and put it on the internet right and then people tweet whatever the fuck they want about you exactly <laughs> yeah you're gonna become the Folk Fest next year yeah, I certainly hope so. I mean, nothing awesome. is, I can't predict the future. Um, to be honest, I was a, actually a little relieved that mm-hmm. um, I didn't have to go to Folk Fest this year because it, it's, yeah. it is a, it's, an, it's a trep. It's a, mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I got caught in between saying trek mm-hmm. and trip. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the trap. Yeah, and the, I don't know, a lot of it would have to do with, um, if I had another person coming down with me from Vermont, because mm-hmm. doing Folk Fest plus the six-hour drive both ways is a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot. And I, last Folk Fest was pretty rough for me. I was so horribly sleep-deprived. <laughs> yeah, because we got drunk the it. Yeah, I took mushrooms and had a, had a good trip, but... Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Had terrible nausea afterward. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely something I noticed more with mushrooms than with acid. Acid's always a lot cleaner. Yeah, and like I have nausea issues anyway. So anyway, not not yeah. not to talk about me. Yeah, yeah. This, this is the Michael Steinfeld neuroses uh, <laughs> hour. Hey, sh- shut up, Steinfeld. You're not allowed to talk. That's a good name for a podcast. Shut up, Steinfeld. 
That'll be the spinoff podcast. <laughs> yeah, it'll be our uh, The Fighter and the King. It, <laughs> it'll be the podcast where all I do is criticize my performance on these podcasts. Like, <laughs> what the fuck were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You, you were not prepared for this. <laughs> Why didn't you do your damn homework? <laughs> Wi-Fi sucks. <laughs> Uh, I, d- I was, like, playing with the idea of watching, like, a couple of um, 9-11 conspiracy documentaries <laughs> earlier today. Yeah, <laughs> just bring those never, up. Never but, forget. Uh, I didn't get around to it. <laughs> yeah, there's still time of, uh, yeah. before a movie club. <laughs> Maybe we can squeeze it in before we watch a B-movie. That next 9-11. <laughs> yeah, next 9-11. The 20th anniversary. <laughs> this will be our, our routine. Yeah. <laughs> Every 9-11, we have to do a podcast. Yeah. I, I would do it. Uh, oh, actually, I did want to talk about that. Um, so 9-11 is the, kind of the thing for us where, like, everyone knows where they were mm-hmm. during 9-11. And apparently most of the time when you say that, you're totally wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wh- where, where were you when you got the news, Matthew Monroy? I was in my McGinn Elementary School. I was in the you were, it was, you were, yeah, so who told you? Uh, well, I got called into the office. My dad worked in New York at the time. He worked for the New I York. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. He, he was in Manhattan when it happened. Wow. And he uh, somehow managed to get off early enough. Like, I think after the first you one hit. in the buildings? In, in the Twin Towers? No, no, not in the Twin Towers. In the New York Times building, okay. which is like, it, it's a New York mile away, I okay. think. But obviously, it's in the same city, and he lives in New Jersey, so he asked his boss if he could leave early so he could get home quick enough to, like, get us from school or something. Wow. When he managed to get out. He managed to get out of the city. Wow. Um, so they, they, they pulled you out of, uh, out of class and told you? Yeah. I think, like, I think, no, he just, I think they pulled us out to say we were being picked up. Okay. I think our, my, my parents took us out of school just to, like... Out of school early? Yeah. Okay, so just uh, just context. We were in second grade. Second grade, okay. And um, because I, I like I said, I remember it very specifically. I was I was in the back of my mom's car when she told me. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, something about they're they're called a uh, flashbulb memories. Just having that crazy like powerful experience just makes you remember the things around you, except most of the time it's bullshit. You just think you remember it, but usually yeah. you're wrong. <laughs> that man in the red overcoat was never there. <laughs> How confident are you in your 9-11 memory? Very, because it's extremely big and, uh, you know, not very specific based. I just remember I got, I left work early. Mm-hmm. You left, you left work early. Yeah, work being me. second grade. I drove out of the... <laughs> work being color, coloring books and, uh, and snack time. Yeah. Fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be... You know what's crazy? They're going to be 18-year-olds in this election that were born after 9-11. Yeah. I think that math checks out. Yeah. Anyone born uh, after September 11th this year? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and before November 3rd. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. Yeah, that is uh, people that don't know that 9-11 was, or like, that weren't alive during 9-11 are starting to become adults. Mm-hmm. What is really weird for me, for some reason, I don't know why this is weird. It just is. Um, 
the students for the class that I'm TAing for are the same age as my brother. Wow. And like, for some reason that just doesn't like level with me. Mm-hmm. Like, Cause I still think of him as just a, just a little baby boy. Little baby boy. <laughs> Raw ice cream sandwiches at perfectly unsuspecting bystanders heads. Yeah. I thought it was your crotch. No, he, no, he, he definitely threw it at my head. I really thought it was your crotch. Honestly, I can't, I'm trying to remember now. See, this is the faultiness of memory. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think he hit my crotch, and then I picked it up, and I threw it at him, and it hit him in the head. Okay. Because I, for some reason, I don't know why the fuck I remember this. I remember you talking about it in uh, Senora Concepcion's Spanish class. <laughs> Junior of high school. No. Junior year, yes. Yeah, junior, yeah, junior year of high school. For some reason, you, I think like, because she, she hated you and like we were ragging on, me and Chris Burke were like ragging on you for something. You were trying to defend yourself. And for some reason, she was from, from these attacks, these unprovoked attacks. <laughs> <laughs> now you, yeah, he really screwed you over. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, I pun- he punched me in the arm first and I punched him back. And then Ms. Concepcion only saw me punch him. That Sid Nerval did the same thing to me all sophomore year in Mr. Tiedemann's class <laughs> in history. And he's got bony fingers. Man, that's got to hurt. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it, uh, it happens. Um, so I, I know you kind of wanted to, to maybe get the message about Folk Fest out there a little yeah. bit. Philadelphia Folk Festival. It's a beautiful... <laughs> family friendly and also drug friendly. I mean, there are a lot of kids there. Oh, there are a ton of kids there. Yeah. Like that one little kid almost took Grant Crandall out on his wagon. Almost ran Grant over. Hell yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a beautiful place. Uh, you know, it's the closest I think we're going to get to Woodstock in our generation. Probably the closest have... we need to get. Yeah, I think that's as close as we need to get. Woodstock seems pretty crazy. I mean, hey, but hey, man, you can do anything for a couple of days. Yeah, you can do anything for a couple of days. But you know, you bring a tent, bring a cooler, send somebody out to go to, go to the giant, get some hot dogs, buy some mushrooms from some white people with dreadlocks, <laughs> and listen to some truly awesome music. Yeah. Thursday through uh, Sunday, Monday, if you got the stones for it. Yes, yeah, so someday I have to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's I would say it's a powerful experience. Yeah, like it looks, it's it's as close to being on psychedelic drugs that you'll get without actually being on psychedelic drugs. Agreed. Which is why it's a perfect place to take psychedelic drugs. You know, I. Well, you know, I've I've had good trips there. I've had not great trips there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I. A- it's it's very overwhelming. That's why when I did it last time. I did it during the day because last time I tripped there, it was at night and we were at the big stage for the big concert. There were, there were kids dancing everywhere, which like freaked me out for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> like being around all these kids while tripping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, something you got to get used to if you're going to be there. Yeah. Remember the first time I, when I had my five gram trip, the first uh, folk fest, there was just a naked baby running around. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, visual information. <laughs> I'm just, just going to keep staring at Roman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
And that's not the only naked person we've seen at Folk Fest. No, I've seen some very good friends naked there. Maybe the last. Jacob Immendorf. Oh, great guy. How, how uh, far away are we from a nudist society, do you think? Oh, I think we're far. How, how many, like, cultural hurdles do we need to, to jump before we, we we're really comfortable enough to look at each other's penises and not compare the size? It's going to take time. It's really going to take time, I think. I mean, that... <laughs> like wearing clothes. Or an apocalyptic uh, situation. Because mm-hmm. that's, that, that's our natural state. That's true. In our bones to do that. Take zero effort to be naked. <laughs> I don't know. I think we. I think. I think society needs to get over a lot of its shames. Yeah. Once we learn. Once we learn to not be ashamed with ourselves, we'll learn how to not feel shame for other people. That's uh, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and then we can look at their dicks. <laughs> and be like, I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> Oh man, um, it's just a man's dick. What's the big deal? <laughs> How are we doing on time, there, Steinfeld? Um, I mean, it's seven forty now. Um, been at this a little over an hour. Um, I, I know we got our got movie club hangout starting mm-hmm. at eight. I'm uh, I'm down to keep going as long as you are. Might as well, yeah. Let's rock it to the end. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I've. Uh, I'm trying to institute a new um, practice of asking people one like really kind of random and out there question. Okay. Podcast and uh, and seeing where it goes. Interesting. Uh, so my weird and random question for you: is, Do you believe in ghosts? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about it, too. Right? Like, come on. Like, he's probably not, you know, Grandpa. <laughs> rocking chair. Saying it burns, it burns. It's like, no, that's, that's crazy Uncle Larry. He's just playing a joke on you. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, at some level, there is this, like, really weird thing. Like, human consciousness seems to be such a crazy thing that it almost seems... It would honestly be kind of a shame if it mm-hmm. just disintegrated after yeah. the human body that it was in. Right. Decided, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> like it, <laughs> it, it's so much more appealing to believe that the right. consciousness still permeates mm-hmm. in some way, shape, and form in our universe. Yeah, it's a comfy thought. It's much comfy. more, yes. And somehow ghosts became this big scary thing. Right? Why should you be scared of that? You should be happy for Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> that he's escaped his mortal coil. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel about being conscious for all eternity, though. Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you live for, you know, five million years. You're, you're going to have some bad days. Right. Can you go to space or are you stuck on Earth? Fuck you. You can go to space. Yeah, fuck a space ghost. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that that was my uh, that was my random question. <laughs> All right, I think we really solved the the case. Do ghosts exist? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> That's going to be the answer forever. Mm-hmm. All right, so you um, here here's an interesting one. So you are about one week into uh, now living on your own with your girlfriend mm-hmm. outside of a uh, her parent. Well, actually, no, never mind. You were doing this beforehand, so you, you guys we actually did, have had. Sister's place. We were yeah. we were homesteading, <laughs> no homesteading for about a year. 
Mm-hmm. All right. So how how is it feeling uh, having your own little place that you guys are are responsible for on the hook for and need to build together? Mm-hmm. It feels awesome. Like it definitely yeah. makes me want to get a job a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> But it's fucking like it's it, especially compared to like living in her sister's place where we we already knew that we lived together very well. But the fact that we couldn't really like mess with anything or like reorganize anything, it gets it gets you after a while. You start to it feels more like a big dorm room than your house. But that's completely different this time. We're you know we're talking about how we want everything oriented. I got my record player set up against the wall. Nice, nice. We went to IKEA. Oh boy, have, have you heard of this? Hell hole, this this <laughs> Swedish serpent that's where, where is there? Where's the where's there an IKEA? Uh, in Elizabeth. Oh wow! It's right next to New York Airport. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely perfect. Oh yeah, yeah. They they probably just uh, airdrop it as they're coming in for us for a smooth landing. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. ever been to an IKEA? Never. That was the first time ever. How was it? devastating <laughs> you feel like less of a man less of a human oh, i feel like yeah i feel like part i feel like part of my soul was eaten just walking through that weird maze of just soft colors soft lighting what about it was so uh demoralizing for you oh the amount of people is just unacceptable like even pandemic be damned i don't care i still don't like being yeah dude, I, I can't stay. that's what i hate about costco mm-hmm. like just like there's just human beings with like small cars, like that's how big the carts are. Like you need a driver's license mm-hmm. to be able to like navigate Costco without bumping into other people. Just and I can't, I can't, it's just a mix of the bed part of Bed Bath & Beyond and uh, waiting in line at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> You're just constantly going around people, bumping into people. It is an extremely difficult place. And then they only try to give you meatballs at the end. I don't want meatballs. I don't want your charity. They actually try to give you meatballs? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I wish they would try to give me meatballs. No, they try to sell them to you. Oh, okay. But I'm not buying it. <laughs> I don't believe in those meatballs. I'm the hell out of here. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is nice. Cooks have cooked a few meals, got, did a little grocery shopping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Still a lot to unpack, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we moved in last year. They're, they're still just a stack of <laughs> got large boxes just in the corner of this, which is basically a storage room. Yeah. Um, despite our efforts to turn it into anything but. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, uh, you just don't realize how much shit you have. Uh-huh. Like, moving more than anything makes you realize, why do I have all this shit? Yeah, right. Do I really need this many Nerf guns? And, like, more explicitly, why does my girlfriend have all this shit? <laughs> yeah, that really made me ask that question, too. <laughs> And like what's uh, what's can be difficult about my place is like it's a family unit for my girlfriend's right. family because the sense exactly. the, the owner so like they keep stuff here too. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, there's too much material shit in the world. Like really? you need few less stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like if we had less stuff, be better just more grounded people definitely yeah. and this is the 
when I when I had my dorm room just how I liked it, or my room at home just how I liked it, there'd be as little out as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm a very simple man. I, I like my vape. <laughs> I like a, a water bottle because I get dehydrated very quickly. Well, you got you got to drink. You got to drink. Got to have a drink. <laughs> um. Uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um. All right, what, what you uh, what you reading these days? You got any uh, recommendations for the people uh, out there? I've been re rereading Ulysses. Okay, I, I've never read that. Oh, it's good, James Joyce. It's a labyrinthine, massive tome <laughs> written by a Irish suspected schizophrenic James Joyce, <laughs> unvery specified alcoholic James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just tremendous. It's a retelling of the Odyssey in a single day in Dublin. And what's just fun about it, especially reading it again, is just how descriptive he is of the city of Dublin. Like he really puts you on, he really puts you in the in the the streets with the pig shit. I uh, I really enjoy uh, sort of a, an overly descriptive level mm-hmm. of the setting. I mean, it's. I, I, I understand why people find that off-putting. I think one of the best at that is uh, George R. R. Martin, the man himself. I mean, oh, yeah. the, he just, he creates a world around you in such incredible detail that you understand why he's never going to finish uh, his series before he dies. Yeah. <laughs> he earned it, damn it. <laughs> what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think the odds are? Two books before he dies? I don't know. Apparently he's been on his grind lately, hasn't he? I, I remember, think so. I remember um, seeing something that he's like almost writing a hundred percent of the time now. Wow. So I, I think hopefully I, I see him as the kind of person where it takes him a long time to get into the zone. Yeah. And then once he's there, it's all he can do. Mm-hmm. Must, it, it must be a hard lifestyle. Oh no. Yeah. The, the man clearly doesn't do a lot of walking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nah. No offense, JRR, but come on, do, do it for the fans. Yeah, I, I, I'm really hoping he can do it. Um, really hoping we get a uh, different, some some different endings in the uh, in the book than oh, we yeah. know. Oh no, yeah, I think a lot of people are. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it kind of has to happen since there are lots of characters in this point in the book, which is now like the last two or three seasons of Game of Thrones. I can't remember. Um, but, They've been ahead of the books for a few seasons now. Yeah. Like, uh, definitely, at least the last two, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it might end similarly, but in a much different way, if that makes sense. I don't, honestly, now that I have, finally have all my books in the same spot, like, this was one of the tricky things about living in a, her sister's place for a while, too, uh, was half of my stuff was still in my parents' storage locker from uh, when we moved out of our house last year, and then half of it was in... <laughs> her sister's storage locker and then whatever whatever I wanted to drag up three flights of stairs uh-huh. made it to the apartment so now for the first time all of my crap is in one place and I believe I still have your storm of swords so well I think that might have been Diego's storm of swords so. yeah okay god I miss Diego yeah you, you never made it through storm of swords no did you I start? got it started, but I never, I, I dropped it like a couple that's years the, ago that, that's the climax of, uh, of the first arc it's Good the one. Mm-hmm. I might make it my new toilet book. Nice, nice. I uh, Game of Thrones is a good toilet book. You can really get lost in both worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really brings it full circle to where we were at the beginning of this podcast. 
most. And that, that's really all life boils down to is the time you spend sitting on the toilet. Yeah. Eventually, that's what it what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And eventually, it will be your casket. <laughs> Toilet's not a bad place to die. No, well, that's what happens when Grandpa's urn just gets passed down ten generations, and they're finally like, "Why are we keeping this thing around?" And they flop <laughs> down the toilet. Yeah, I, I didn't know we were going to bring up toilets this much. Um, that's that's always the fun thing about doing these. Just you you never know what's going to be like the weird prevailing theme mm-hmm. throughout the podcast. Yeah, and this time it just it happened to be toilets. Honestly, to bring it back, if you're going to be setting up a trip for yourself, uh, taking a psychedelic drug, set up the bathroom. Do something nice for yourself. Okay. <laughs> get like a funny picture book or a book with a bunch of animals in it. That that, that sounds like a lot of fun. One time I kept The Hobbit there. I was just flipping through different parts of The Hobbit and reading that. Have you uh, have you read those books? Any no. Other? Okay. Only on the toilet. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never read that. They seem like absolute like beasts of books. Yeah, J.R.R. Tolkien is... He's not a, he's not a reader's writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's... And like, a, isn't a bunch of his stuff is like still unpublished is that is that true or am i just making that up i think a lot of him still is he had his big one that got released uh, the Simmerillion. i i think that was when he was still alive that just explains the backstory okay lord of the rings he, he, he does a lot of when it comes to world building you, you can't beat the talk no and yeah i uh i don't care for those movies to be honest what I, yeah, I don't know. There's... Hobbit or Lord of the Rings? What? Hobbit uh, Lord of the Rings. Never seen The Hobbit. Are you kidding me? Yeah, then don't care for him. I don't know. Susan I, Peter Jackson. I I think, I mean, I think I really needed like someone who really knows the the story and the universe mm-hmm. to like talk me through because I just kept having questions like, what the fuck is this? Because I'm sure they cut out like so much stuff from the book. I'm sure they cut out most of the book. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> It's like crazy that you can make like three three hour movies and like still not get through the books. You never you never saw it through the eyes of a child and just uh, just gasped in wonder like oh it's Gandalf Gandalf made it. No, <laughs> no, because I didn't see them as kids. I saw them as like a twenty year old. Wow, that late. Wow. Yeah. Maybe. I, had, I had at least seen them by the time I was like fourteen or fifteen. I'd seen like bits and pieces, but it's like I'd never sat down in a single spot and watched the whole damn thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you can you can split it up. Yeah, no, I know that. <laughs> Each one's like three <laughs> hours a piece. Never Even longer if you go into the director's cut, which you will be <laughs> if you respect the, the material. Apparently, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, you have no I, I, I only have so many shits to give. Right. In this universe. <laughs> and I can't just be giving them away. That's, that's beautiful. That's a classic Steinfeld. <laughs> right well, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you, you know, in, in a cer- at a certain level, you do have to be selfish about your time and your energy. I mean, it's exactly yeah. like what you were saying earlier about how your favorite way to trip is alone. Just being you're in control of your own time yourself is really oh, yeah. amazing. Oh, I get you. It's just that no one puts it quite as bluntly as you do, Steinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, why beat around the bush? Exactly. Why beat around the bush did 9-11? <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know what to say to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> the American people don't know what to say to it either. Yeah, I think, um, and I'm, I'm still in the middle of, um, of going back to, to blowback mm-hmm. podcast and really learning about, um, the war in Iraq, because you know we we were just kids when it was going on, but I, exactly. I remember it. It you know even you know it was culturally big enough for even us as as kids to really yeah be aware of what was going on. You know that that's how big this was, and it it's, it seems to kind of a slip been swept under the rug a little bit. Like oh yeah, are we going to think in you know thirty years about the Iraq War the same way we think about the Vietnam War today? Me, I, uh, honestly, I an important question. We should, I think, yeah. it's important to remember this this stuff and and study it and learn about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, so much was going on in the in the late sixties, early seventies. The whole time period in that in the country was just on fire and so you know the vietnam war kind of gets put as the symbol of that or one of the big symbols of that but mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that was there was that level of uh no cultural change in the early 2000s no definitely not and like lyndon johnson had to step well he didn't have to but he chose to step down as president because of the vietnam war mm-hmm. you know and Bush is dancing on on Ellen, you know, completely <laughs> different world. You know, we pretty much pummeled the Iraqi state into dust with mm-hmm. the first sanctions. Then and war. we we did it before that too. That oh, yeah. wasn't the first time we went in there, and mm-hmm. you know, did, did a little rearranging. Exactly, and I think Blowback does a great job of talking about even the non-warfare things we did, like mm-hmm. just inhumane amounts of sanctions that left a post-war, post-Gulf War Iraq just completely incapable of running itself as a country and gradually Saddam lost his control over power and Mm -hmm. we saw our shot. Yeah. I, um, that's, that's gotta be an an interesting guy to study and really try to understand. Um, according to Dan Carlin of, uh, of hardcore history. Oh yeah. That, um, like reading a book about Saddam Hussein, was the only book where he's ever, if he read it at night, he had to read another book before he went to bed mm-hmm. because he just, he couldn't sleep having just read about Saddam Hussein. That's how bad and crazy he apparently was. Oh no. Yeah. He was like, he had big Stalin energy, like <laughs> starting off his life as just like a, a crooked thug who gets employed by a uh, nationalist militia that eventually seizes control of the government mm-hmm. and then he seizes control of that, uh, uh, that party. It becomes the de facto dictator for the rest of his life. Crazy how it works. Yeah. Until America says you need a little bit of freedom over there, boy. Yeah. We'll, we'll trade you freedom for oil. How, how's that deal? No, but then we wouldn't even do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think the, the, the blowback podcast does a great job of going over. It's just how, much we pushed the Saddam uh, regime's buttons, just trying to just agitate it and continue to put it under new and new pressures, which honestly, you know, it is a tricky situation. Like this is why I think the Iraq war was sellable to a lot of people, even though, you know, arguably, you know, the idea of, you know, the domino theory of communism (laughs) taking over the world was probably a lot heavier for people during the Vietnam war. People still believed when, 
we told them about Saddam Hussein that he was, you know, the next Hitler in waiting. Yeah, and um, yeah, I I actually forgot that it's uh, it's nine eleven, and so I was just yeah. about was just about to bring it back to the twin towers. I mean, when something like that happens, that is a way of unifying people and. Mm-hmm bringing them together against a common enemy, whether that enemy is real or, or made up. Exactly. So, you know, I, I don't even know, like, putting the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan in the context of, like, a post-9-11, like, mm-hmm. if that makes it more or less understandable why that might have happened and why it might be forgotten the way the Vietnam War hopefully will not be and ha- and has been still remembered and studied. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think we're actually kind of entering a crucial period where we risk losing sight of, um, of the massive fuck-up. <laughs> that yeah. happens and you know we, we can't afford to lose track of our fuck-ups because we'll just keep doing them again and again mm-hmm. so. Honestly, i think 9-11 definitely gave at least joe public the just justification they needed it didn't justify what we I mean, did absolutely yeah it made it made it a sellable movement but like they didn't need a 9-11 to do the first gulf war no but what honestly probably kept us from doing the first Gulf War again, where we just rained down hell from above instead of having, you know, actual boots on the ground, which, which we did later on, but not, it was an extremely short war. <laughs> I think the, what we, why we didn't do that in Afghanistan and Iraq is because at least no small part, 9-11 gave us and, you know, the, the people who decide these things, a, a clear, a clear cut enough check to just, do what they did, which was uh, basically a full-scale invasion and occupation, mm. where it became much less about, you know, rooting out the people who may have been involved in this terrorist attack and became very much more about uh, rebuilding the government of two states from the ground up <laughs> into the image of what we wanted them to be mm. and selling it as a, 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 a war on terror. And then, um, uh, uh, assumedly, this is what I, my interesting take from that is, is that we probably, we did a lot of the same things in the Vietnam War. We would come, we would clear the, the area of Viet Cong. We'd help, uh, or, you know, quote unquote, help the mm-hmm. Vietnamese who were there when we weren't killing them, trying to get them on our side. But then as soon as we take off, the Viet Cong come back from out of the trees yep. and take the area back. And you don't really have that option of guerrilla warfare in the desert because everything is very wide open and you can see well, things. Well, it becomes guerrilla warfare in cities and, and towns. Exactly. So yeah. that's when it gets really dangerous for, I mean, for innocent people. Just mm-hmm. try and more, more importantly, that's where the occupation becomes very hard. Like we were able to get a lot more done in Afghanistan because their government was a lot less powerful and mm-hmm. we were able to set up shop pretty quickly and even though the government didn't turn out, you know, necessarily good, it still turned into a government that was willing to, like, cooperate with the United States and, you know, root out terrorists. Mm-hmm. But in Iraq, you had these massive city battles like Fallujah, where you just have thousands of 
insurgents, but like ex Iraqi army and like uh, just Islamic uh, militants who've been <laughs> uh, like that's one of the most fascinating things about blowback is the uh, reaction of both the Shia and Sunni Muslim communities in Iraq to Saddam being ousted and the Americans being posted up because the Shia had been uh, the, the the dominant uh, Muslim uh, population of Iraq. And it's one of the few uh, Arab countries where that's the case. Most of uh, most, uh, Muslims are Sunni in the world. And Saddam was a Sunni and he kept the population under pretty strict control. And when he was ousted, the Shia population, some of which had been heavily radicalized by the massive, by the years of oppression under Saddam and the massive American occupation, uh, became the, some of the first insurgents to start fighting back. And then Sunni insurgents started uh, developing their own groups, trying to take power. And uh, of course, just like in Vietnam, as soon as we started to pull back and yeah, once we couldn't keep the situation under control, quote unquote, uh, these groups just had their way with the country. Yep. And then you, then you get ISIS, ISIL, you get just, it, it is so obvious to us now that I feel like this is sort of the reason we don't talk about it because it's, it's frankly just embarrassing how we thought we were going to pummel these two countries into dust and then remake them as American allies. <laughs> that would be, uh, you know, poignant members of the war on terror. Mm-hmm. When in reality, we just made it much, much worse. Yeah, um, that's why I'm saying, you know, this, I think it's, this is an important tipping point, you know, this could be one of those things that's forgotten about, or it could be one of those things that becomes culturally important. Yeah, honestly, I think it might honestly be heavier in the memory of uh, people from other countries, like not even just the Arab world, people in Europe, like, that's like, there were million people wide anti-war marches yeah. in Spain, Italy, Germany, France, all these places <laughs> when the likelihood of Amer- America beginning war in Iraq and Afghanistan began. Mm-hmm. And I think that memory was probably going to be a little bit more poignant for them because they saw the destruction from a third per- perspective. Mm-hmm. They didn't have, they, like, obviously they saw 9-11, they, you know, it registered in the international world, but when it's not your own countrymen, that were killed in a terrorist attack, you start to see the cracks in the logic of attacking two completely different countries and destroying their governments under the suspicion that they're harboring these, this particular group. Yeah. All right. Well, that that seems like a happy note to, uh, to wrap this thing up on. Um, Thank you, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, (laughs) making this possible. (laughs) (laughs) You got uh, any uh, shout outs to give any uh, final points you want to make? Uh, I'll just do a quick shout out to my uh, my good friend Lawrence. Just had his first baby. Oh, uh, yeah, congratulations, Lawrence! A couple weeks old, uh, healthy baby boy, and uh, you know it's the first Corona child I've uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first child I haven't had the pleasure of meeting. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I just wanted to say congratulations to him and congratulations to you, Steinfeld, for wow. the podcast for Thank sticking you. around with it. Yeah, I'm I'm having fun doing it. People seem to be enjoying it. I don't pretty, care what the YouTube comments are saying about you. What? I don't care what the YouTube comments are saying. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty small contingency. Yeah, um, ugly and you got a funny voice. Yep. Yeah, I didn't realize how horrible my voice was. Um, <laughs> and I know that's something like everyone says when they hear their own voice on audio, but it's it's bad. Mm-hmm. Hey, don't worry. Uh, well, if I can get over it, anybody else can. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, you've been an awesome guest. I, I would, I am definitely going to have you back on because I know you got more to say. Oh yeah. And um, that's it. We're just, we're just going to, we're just going to keep doing this. this All right. All right. You will see you in the movie club. And just remember if uh, Steinfeld talks and Steinfeld walks. <laughs> All right. Keep, keep that in mind, people. Thanks for listening.